Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. The Brexit crisis of the past few years turned the status of Northern Ireland into a vital matter for British and European politics. Negotiations over Britain's departure from the EU hinged on the question of how Northern Ireland should relate both to its southern neighbour and to the rest of the United Kingdom. For two years after the election of 2017, the Tory government in London relied on support from the Democratic Unionist Party. As the Brexit crisis reached a crescendo near the end of 2018, Boris Johnson spoke at the DUP conference and received a hero's welcome. His name, of course, is the Right Honourable Boris Johnson MP. Thank you very much, everybody. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you very much. The following summer, when Johnson became British Prime Minister, DUP leader Arlene Foster expressed the hope that they could work together to resolve the crisis. So we look forward to working with the Prime Minister in strengthening the union. We look forward to working with the new Secretary of State and trying to find the restoration of devolution. And of course we look forward to working with him on delivering the votes of the British people in June of 2016 in delivering Brexit. Soon afterwards, however... Johnson returned with a new Brexit deal that gave Northern Ireland its own special arrangements and erected trade barriers in the Irish Sea. The DUP's Sammy Wilson responded with outrage at Westminster. We're not trying to stop Brexit. In fact, there has been no... We have been pilloried in this House because we have been seen to be some of the, 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 the most determined people to deliver Brexit. But this the Brexit that we have on offer is not a Brexit for the United Kingdom. It's a Brexit for part of the United Kingdom. It leaves Northern Ireland still within the single market. It leaves Northern Ireland still under the customs code of the EU. It means that there are any goods coming in to Northern Ireland from GB will be subject to customs checks, to uh, customs declarations, to tariffs. It means that when we send goods to another part of our own country, We've got to sign export declarations, all of which add costs and delays to um, the, the, the economy of Northern Ireland and will p- put a huge imposition on small firms. The Northern Ireland Protocol of Johnson's Brexit Agreement is still a potential flashpoint, both within the region itself and in relations between the UK and the European Union. Despite having received more attention in the wider world over the past five years than at any point in living memory, Northern Irish unionism remains poorly understood as a social and political force. Our guest today is Peter Sherlow. He's the director of the Institute of Irish Studies at the University of Liverpool and the author of several books on politics and society in Northern Ireland. There's now a broad consensus that the outcome of the Brexit process has weakened the position of unionism in Northern Ireland. Why did the leading Unionist Party first of all support Brexit and then align itself with Boris Johnson in particular during the crisis that followed the referendum vote? Was it a question of poor leadership or do you think there's something deeper at work there? The political unionism got caught up in the narrative around getting our country back and very much fell for that sort of populist rhetoric, uh, given that they would be, especially within the Democratic Unionist Party, have always been very anti-EU, seeing it as uh, encroaching upon British values and seeing Europe as, as impo- imposing laws and, and rules and regulations. 
that wouldn't have been popular with them. Not not all political unionism, don't forget, the Ulster Unionist Party campaigned to remain. And if you look at the uh, survey data we had, the majority of unionists either voted for remain or didn't vote. So it's it's, it's not a, although the majority of them who did vote voted for Europe, a significant share, around 45% voted for remain and a significant share didn't vote. So it's all a bit more nuanced. I think they got caught up a little bit in the headlights of, of, of having power at one time upholding the, the May government. But I think what, what has emerged is very clear. Uh, they've completely misunderstood and misinterpreted, first of all, Brexit and what it would mean. Not understanding that English nationalism would hamper and, and impede the uh, politics of the Union. Uh, I don't think they understood that. I think they also have misread the, the protocol. Northern Ireland has not been annexed in any way within domestic or international law regarding annexation from the UK. That's just complete nonsense. The UK Parliament is sovereign. It can decide the rules and regulations. And what they fail to understand is that in in terms of ratifying Brexit and international law, that the UK government decided to take back control of the internal market. And, and in doing that, they had to find, given the conditions of the Good Friday Agreement, a way in which the border in Ireland was kept open, which they weren't particularly against the border in Ireland being kept open and uh, understood the value, you know, of, 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 of cross-border trade, etc. But they seem to have got caught up in this politics of a form of nationalism, somewhat egos filled by, by the confidence agreement with the government and basically didn't see what was coming. And when it did happen, and when those forces of English nationalism were unleashed, what actually had happened because of that in the Good Friday Agreement was that border had to be placed somewhere. And this check on trades and goods that has come about during the protocol has basically questioned the previous relationship, which was, of course, of completely unfettered and unchecked trade. So I suppose it was a rudimentary politics caught up in a very complex situation and not understanding and then not having the grace to express that you'd got this wrong. And there's now created a sort of vociferous politics around bringing down the protocol, which cannot be brought down, and understanding the protocol as an event when it actually is a process. But they are right in one way, which is very important. You know, the peace process in Northern Ireland has been built upon economic prosperity. It has been built upon the new economy around cybercrime, fintech, and the film industry. And of course, as unemployment has declined and wages have risen, we have had a significant decline in violence. And, and of course, the predominant economic relationship is east-west. You know, 70 to 80% of our trade and movement of goods and investment comes east-west, Britain to, to Northern Ireland. And of course, any fettering of that will cost jobs and could theoretically undermine investment, which actually challenges the whole edifice of the of, of the peace process in terms of economics. And I think one of the things also important to understand, you know, if you, if you look at these islands, you've basically opened, kept the border open in Ireland for what is equivalent to 20% of your income, but brought in some conditions. Obviously, they're still being dealt with in negotiations, but you have brought in some conditions that would undermine 80% of your economy to a certain extent. And I suppose the question is, if we didn't have identity politics, if we didn't have the threat of violence at the start of Brexit from Republicans, then of course, you know, this may have turned out very differently. 
in terms of you know, the border might have been put on the island of Ireland. Not that I would advocate that. But I think the overall lesson here is that violence at the start of uh, Brexit from Republicans led to the protocol being designed in one way, keeping the border open, at the expense of another identity crisis the other way, which has created this anger and ire within unionism and nationalism. Back in 1998, the referendum on the Good Friday Agreement passed by a landslide margin. Yes, 71.12%. The percentage for the no was 28.88%. The unionist leader David Trimble and the nationalist politician John Hume jointly received the Nobel Peace Prize that year. They were warmly congratulated by Bill Clinton. For 30 years, John Hume has been committed to achieving peace through negotiations, not confrontation and violence. He has been an inspiration to the nationalist community, to all the people of Northern Ireland and indeed all around the world. David Trimble, as unionist leader, took up the challenge of peace with rare courage, negotiating and beginning to implement the Good Friday Accord. Both have earned this award. However, the euphoria of the moment overshadowed the fact that there was always significant unionist opposition to the agreement. David Trimble himself had reservations, but told critics that it was the only game in town. Even amongst those who have uncertainties and dislikes about the agreement, even amongst those who voted no, there is at heart a realisation that there is no alternative. Going back to the time of the Good Friday Agreement in the late 1990s, what were the principal gains and losses for unionism in the text of the agreement and the process that followed it? And why do you think that unionist support was so much lower than national support in the referendum, which was 57% in favour by one estimate? Uh, the big issue was prisoner release. And uh, that came across very strongly. 90 odd percent of the unionist community opposed the release of prisoners which wasn't just the, the opposition to loyal, or Republican prisoners being released. It was also significant opposition to loyalist prisoners being released. Uh, the unionist community did have a very uh, strong rejection of, of, of paramilitary violence from whatever end. Uh, in nationalism, it was around 75% who opposed prisoner release. So it was the, it was the major issue at that time. Uh, the Good Friday Agreement is a very pro-union document. You know, the Republic of Ireland dropped Articles 2 and 3, it's claim. To Northern Ireland. Republicans said they would never sign up to the principle of consent, which they did. Republicans said they would never sit in a, 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 a partitionist assembly, which they did. And I, I assume for the unionist community are sections of it. I think it's very important to make it clear there is no such thing as the unionist community. There are people who are pro-union. You know, some of the most socially liberal people in Northern Ireland are pro-union. Some of the most vociferously conservative people in Northern Ireland are pro-union. It does have a, an internal dynamic, uh, as does nationalism and republicanism. It's not, it's not just a thing. It, it has different wings and personalities and traits within it. But but at the time, uh, I think the uh, the question of prisoners, I, I think the question of police reform, you know, it's uh, even somebody like me who was a, and remains a great advocate of the Good Friday Agreement, like many of my relatives were in the police, and we did go to the funerals, one of my best friends, uh, had joined the police and was killed by Republicans. So so there were emotive issues like that, which the Paisleyites at that time were, either, were able to push. 
And uh, But if you look at it now in terms of the surveys, there's massive uh, support within the unionist community for the institutions and especially for power sharing. And uh, I suppose in a way, those unionists who did support the Good Friday Agreement wanted the conflict to end and, and they appreciated that. Like, don't forget, loyalists signed up to the Mitchell principles long before Sinn Féin and Tr David Trimble, you know, ruined his career pushing through the Good Friday Agreement. So I don't think it's just a simple question of yeas and nays. Uh, I, I, I think it's uh, it goes down to, you know, we experience conflict in our society differently. You know, my wife's a Catholic from Derry. She experienced loyalist and uh, state violence, whereas me as an Ulster Protestant, I experienced Republican violence. So, so you know, even that in itself framed a lot of the, the experience of, of the Good Friday Agreement. And of course, one of the things that has happened in the pro-union community since 1998, which I think is critically important, is, 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 is it has come to be incredibly socially liberal, much more so than it was. And, and what you've also observed is, is that uh, mood change uh, towards now being able to accept uh, power sharing, etc. And, and to, in many ways, part the past in terms of IRA violence, etc., to a certain extent. But but what has really happened here is Brexit has just ruptured that sort of consensus that, that had taken place in Northern Ireland. And, and for significant sections of the unionist community, it now seems that this idea of an Irish border has really hit at the heart of their identity dynamic. And where we had sort of calmed people down, you know, you see this in the, the surveys 10, 15 years ago, you know, in a, in a rough sort of way of explaining it, most unionists thought Catholics and Republicans were being given concessions and were benefiting most from the peace process. And the other surveys we did in around before Brexit became what it was, that had grown to a very neutral position that, that they saw both sides as, as gaining from the peace process. So, you know, I'm sorry to make this all very complicated, but, but there's more complexity to this than you think. But Brexit most certainly has created a a sense of disposition from within the UK. Why did David Trimble and the Ulster Unionist Party lose their dominant position to Ian Paisley and the DUP after 1998? Do you think there was anything that Trimble could have done that would have affected the outcome? The, the, this fundamental problem was the refusal of Republicans to, at that stage, to decommission and the uh, refusal of Republicans until very late in the day to sign up to policing. And at the start... You know, this was very clear in 1998, uh, significant shares of the pro-union community came out and voted for the agreement. They then disappeared. And, and uh, you know, there, there is, you've got to remember, if you look at those who stress constitutional position through election surveys, three quarters of those who do not vote, who express a constitutional preference or pro-union, there's a significant section of the pro-union community has no desire to engage with political unionism. It sees it as backward, it sees it as uh, right-wing, it sees it as not having the same values as, as, as that more socially liberal community. So part of it, part of Trimble's problem was that, that wing came out and, and voted for the agreement and then basically went home and, and didn't want to engage. As I've said, uh, Sinn Féin didn't sign up to policing for a significant part of the, of the process which led to that question about uh, are Republicans going to respect the institutions of the state? That was very problematic. 
uh, basically, given that it took so long to achieve decommissioning, constantly weakened Trumbull. So, so the two themes which had encouraged people to vote against the agreement, the IRA, basically, and uh, prisoner release. So the prisoners have been released without decommissioning. The prisoners have been released without signing the, the, the endorsement of policing. Um, by the time those things came, of course, it was too late for Trumbull. And in many ways, those who had voted for the agreement and supported the agreement who were unionists, you know, weren't going to come out and help him because, you know, they had already withdrawn. And the DUP was able to build, build up a head of steam by saying, Republicans aren't serious about this. This is a folly. And the things that you promised Trimble haven't materialized. And that very much undermined them. So, you know, there, there, there's also an argument at that time with the British government that at the end of the day, they really wanted Sinn Féin and the DUP to be in charge because you already had the SDLP and the Ulster Unionists on board. And, and of course, if you're, if you're trying to solve a long-term conflict, you need the more vociferous groups to come, into the, come in from the cold. And I think a lot of the uh, behind-the-scenes negotiation uh, very much undermined both the SDLP and the Ulster Unionists. Don't forget the SDLP are also a casualty of the Good Friday Agreement in identity and political terms as well. Because what happened is the DUP and Sinn Féin became much more prominent because bringing the DUP and Sinn Féin into the institutions was a greater goal than bringing in those who you already had captured. Why did the political parties associated with the Loyalist paramilitaries not pose a more significant challenge to the larger unionist parties? I'm somebody who grew up in a Protestant working class background and the vast majority of people who lived in the community in which I lived, had no time for loyalist paramilitaries. Many of us had relatives in the police, and uh, we understood uh, that that was the, uh, the monopoly of violence or the monopoly of policing and authority lay with the state and not with paramilitaries. Clearly, by the later stages of paramilitarism, uh, sections of it had morphed into criminality, which was also repugnant to many people within the loyalist community. And you have to remember also, uh, you know, <clears throat> which is sometimes forgotten, families like mine completely and utterly abhorred the killing of Catholics. It was, it was, it was seen as pernicious and nasty. And uh, in my own home, I remember every morning when I came down and the, the my mother would be making breakfast and my father would be making breakfast and the uh, radio would be on. And up would come the latest, you know, Catholic man shot in Ardoin by loyalists. And both of my parents would turn around and say, that was a disgrace and that's somebody's son or daughter. So, so you have to realize there was never a, a within working class communities, there, 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 were, there, were, there were those who supported paramilitaries and those who found them completely and utterly repulsive. And, and I made that very clear. Whenever they used to come around the door collecting money, you know, my mother would, would insist that they got away from our door, that, the, that the, she was not funding the persecution and killing of Catholics. And, and you've got to realise also, you know, in communities like mine, there were, there were a lot of people who were steeped in trade unionism, who were steeped in anti-sectarian policy and practice. So part of it is that. And, and of course, I suppose the death of personalities such as David Irvine, who probably did speak more for that sort of working class experience, and who did accept uh, that what he had done in the past, I think the phrase he used was, I was involved in a dirty and pernicious little conflict. And he did show regret. So, so, so there was that 
Uh, but then again, they, they were squeezed also because they were seen as being pro-agreement uh, in that period that I've already explained when the IRA were not decommissioning her and Sinn Féin were not signing up to policing. Uh, but I think what is interesting is is where that has gone, that sort of uh, loyalist politics is into the community sector. And we do have a very significant, you know, loyalist community sector that engages in reconciliation, that engages in anti-homophobia, anti-racism, pro-women's rights approaches. Uh, so it may not be there in a political form, but it certainly is there in a very strong and robust community form. And I think has been also very influential in recent years when police officers, prison officer and soldiers have been killed, that that very sector has ensured that there's been no loyalist retaliation. So, so there is something there which has been very successful in uh, ensuring that that type of violence has not reappeared. What would you say is the political and, if you like, psychological legacy of the IRA campaign for the unionist population as a whole? Well, experience. I think, I think, I think memory and experience. Uh, you know, uh, my mother and I were in Belfast on Bloody Friday and we went into Oxford Street bus station, as it was then, and she'd forgotten her purse, and she was talking to a sort of a, a second or third cousin, and uh, she realised that she'd forgotten her purse, and she grabbed me by the hand and dragged me out of Oxford Street bus station. And as she was doing it, the bomb went off, and uh, we were taken across the road by a man. My, my mother just broke down in front of me. I would think I was seven or eight years of age. And she, a man took us across. There was a coal yard across, or a bit of wasteland across from the bus centre. And he said, stand here. I don't think they'll plant any bombs here. And we stood there as the bombs were going off around the city and the chaos that unfolded that day. So, you know, I'm not saying that to detract from the nasty, pernicious violence that was directed towards the Catholic community. But, but you know, there was that experience, if you, especially if you're working class and you lived near an interface of of that type of violence uh, uh, against your community. During the Troubles, the IRA's main objective was to kill members of the British security forces. From the late 1970s, the British government adopted a policy that became known as Ulsterisation. That meant putting the locally recruited forces, the Royal Ulster Constabulary and the Ulster Defence Regiment, in the front line of the struggle against the IRA. From that point on, the majority of security force casualties came from the RUC and the UDR, both of which were recruited overwhelmingly from the unionist population. The following clip comes from a news report on one of the most lethal attacks carried out by the IRA against an RUC barracks in 1985. In the heart of a staunchly Republican border town, the union flag mourns for nine policemen and women killed by the provisional IRA. They died as they spent a few moments at ease from the troubles in Newry Police Station's backyard canteen. The little wooden cabin was reduced to splinters. It had been crammed with officers taking their tea time break and was hit directly, killing nine of the 20 people inside. Some policemen just stood quietly amid the wreckage, numbed by the sudden loss of so many colleagues. The death toll could have been much worse. Five shells missed their target. One landed in the street at the front of the station, which is surrounded by houses. Many homes were damaged, cars were wrecked, but amazingly, no one outside the police compound was injured. The IRA denied that attacks on members of the URUC and the UDR were sectarian and saw the victims as combatants in a war. 
However, just over half of those killed by the IRA during the Troubles matched its own definition of legitimate targets. The rest were civilians. IRA spokesmen insisted that they did their best to avoid what the US military calls collateral damage. But whatever their intentions may have been, their bombings killed hundreds of people, both Protestant and Catholic. One of the most notorious atrocities came in 1987, when an IRA bomb exploded during a Remembrance Day ceremony in Enniskillen and killed 11 people. It provoked a massive popular backlash against the IRA campaign. Republican leaders acknowledged that it was a disaster for their movement. This news report from 2012 marked the 25th anniversary of the bombing. That morning in 1987, the victims were all civilians who had gathered at the Cenotaph to honour those who died in two world wars. Eleven people were killed in the mayhem and over 60 were injured. After 13 years in a coma, a 12th person, a local school teacher, passed away in the year 2000. Nobody has ever been convicted in relation to the crime. You know, the vast majority of Republican violence didn't lead to prosecutions. And I suppose that's a very enduring and uh, difficult relationship. And I think also, you know, one of the ways that's healed is when those narratives are shared because, you know, going back to my family, you know, where everybody, you know, the people that are around me understood that if you lost a loved one, you had the same psychological and emotional reaction, whether you're a Catholic or Protestant or other. I think the one thing that really did stick in people's minds were the no warning bombs. Uh, and, and that wasn't unique, of course, to Republicans, but it most certainly has stuck with them. Uh, but at the same time, one of the other things you find doing sort of survey work and research work with the, the unionist community, it is much more likely to wish to just simply move on and to park the past. And, and, and whenever I say that to Republicans, they always say, because they want, don't want to engage with what happened to, to the Republican community. I actually don't believe that. I think they actually do. Whatever our faith backgrounds or cultural backgrounds are, I, I do think there's a very significant share of the pro-union community who just simply want legacy to stop and who want to move on and want to get on with their lives. And It doesn't really have a political form, but I think it does have a very strong emotional form. What have been the main social and economic trends that have affected working class unions in particular since the late 1990s? And would you say their experience has differed from the experience of working class nationalists? Very different to working class nationalists, given that working class nationalists are much more likely to still live in poverty and social exclusion. Uh, th th this is one of the abounding myths about the Protestant working class. If you look at the uh, uh, SOAs, the, the, the output areas for wards, if you look at the 100 most deprived places in Northern Ireland, roughly 70 are Catholic, around 10 are mixed, and the rest are Protestant. So, so, so we've been fed this narrative that the Protestant community has uh, lost out during the peace process in socioeconomic terms. That's factually incorrect. The, the greater levels of poverty and social disadvantage are within NASA's Republican communities. So that's a narrative that's been spread by Republicans in the media which sections of unionism are very happy to grab onto because it feeds into that alienation narrative. We often hear about uh, Protestant educational disadvantage. Numerically, more Catholic kids are leaving school without educational qualifications. And the schoolboys model, uh, which would draw from the Shankill area and uh, uh, Ballysillan, Shore Road, etc., North Belfast, Catholic Protestant areas. Last year, 55 boys in that school went to university. 
three or four years ago it was 20. so 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 yet again we, we get these very sloppy narratives of course we shouldn't be uh talking about poverty as catholic and protestant we should be talking about it as, as poverty and social exclusion and the, and the forces of neoliberalism but the idea that the protestant community doesn't have a community sector the protestant community still doesn't have social mobility that the Protestant community is much worse off than the Catholic community is simply untrue. There's no evidence for that. Now, what we do have evidence of for both communities is, is that they have not received the peace dividend uh, in the same manner as the middle classes. The fintech, cybercrime, movie industry, the growth of the economy in Belfast has most certainly favoured grammar school children. And, and if we want to really talk about these issues, we, we, should, we should get down to one real reality. What affects your life choices in Northern Ireland, your, sorry, your life outcomes in Northern Ireland, is are your parents married? Do your parents work? Do your parents own your home? Did your parents go to university? Exactly the same social forces across these islands. And, and that's the conversation we should be having. But it is, it is, it is peculiar when facts tell you that, there is more, <laughs> that you're more likely to be poor and socially marginalised within the Catholic community, that we have this massive construct in the public domain, which says the completely the opposite. It, it, it fascinates me why that has become a, 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 a sense within society when it when it's simply untrue. If you look at the the, the list of uh, the most deprived wards in Northern Ireland, if you look at the list of the top ten or twenty, the vast majority of them are Catholic areas. But which which asks another question: Why? Is it that we don't hear about that? Why do we hear from Republican and nationalist communities about the poverty they experience? Because we do hear about it from the Protestant communities. They're, they're, they're ever vigilant about the housing issues and they're ever vigilant about job losses, etc. Whereas in the Republican nationalist community, we hear nothing about this. We, we, hear, we, we, do, we don't hear anything. We don't hear anybody in Sinn Féin ever saying there's massive poverty in our areas because we have this sort of peculiar situation that nationalist Republicans present themselves as winners and unionists and loyalists present themselves as losers, when in fact no evidence backs that up. But of course, ideologically, it's critical to the reproduction of both. How important for unionism is the question of marches by the Orange Order and other organisations from Drum Cree in the late 1990s to the present day? Well, you have to call them parades for a start. The marches is seen as offensive within the the orange, orange uh, tradition. For some people, they're critically important. The lodges actually are much smaller now. It's, 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 it's what, where the growth has been in the last few decades has been in the bands. And, and, and for those who don't know, bands aren't the orange order. The bands are, are, are autonomous and uh, are booked by the orange lodges whenever they parade. Uh, you know, membership of the orange order is very old now. And, well, certainly any sort of middle class involvement has, has virtually disappeared. Uh, it's been very lumpenized by, uh, o- over time. Obviously, Orangeism just doesn't have the power that it once had, and it's no longer allied to the state in the way that it once was. It's a part of ritual, it's a part of uh, cultural performance within communities, and very important to, to some people. Many people wouldn't go near it who are pro-union, but you know, most people I know haven't been to an Orange Parade in 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, whereas I know other people who go to nearly every parade that there is. So yet again, it's nuanced in, in that sense. I, I think it's also important uh, during the the Ardoin issue, I was approached by Republicans who said, could I get Protestant business people into a room? Because they wanted Protestant business people to go and speak to the Orange Order and tell the Orange Order that what they were doing was harming the city. 
And I said, I can go and get these people, but they don't know anybody in Orangeism. And, and they went, no, 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 these, these, these guys direct and control the Orange Order, the bourgeoisie. And I went, these guys don't know the Orange Order. These guys will have nothing to do with the Orange Order. And uh, so anyway, we organized the meeting. And sure enough, when the Republicans walked into the room and started asking these people to use their influence to get the Orange Order to behave, everybody in the room turned around and says, we have no contacts with the Orange Order. We have no links with the Orange Order. So, so there was even there a sort of a 1960s understanding of class forces, which I can be quite clear to you, just simply don't exist as they once did. There's now a whole generation of loyalist paramilitaries who have come of age since the IRA ceasefire. Why are those groups still active and what impact do they have on the ground? Well, they have, they have two things going back to the band culture. Uh, well, one of the things that the bands have been very useful for has been for that progressive type loyalism. They have used the bands to promote anti-sectarianism, anti-racism and to try to encourage uh, young people to get involved in activity in their communities. One of the reasons why you have uh, generally lower crime rates in working class Protestant areas compared to Catholic areas is that young men in bands gives them an outlet, it gives them something to do. So, you know, they learn an instrument, you know, they they collect money for charity. It gives them a sense of, sort of social capital and purpose. So that's an interesting facet to it. Loyalism is in competition with itself. You know, you know, look at somewhere like Lisburn and the Sorghum Trust, massive social economy initiative employs people from across the sectarian divide, employs people who are new immigrants uh, to, to the Lisburn area, you know, runs a social economy project that undertakes an anti-racism, cross-community work, etc. Compare that to other loyalists who are engaged in crime and uh, other nefarious activities. So I assume, you know, this term loyalism again is, is used as a homogenous term. And in fact, the, the, the politics of loyalism is quite diverse. You saw that recently where sections of loyalism made it very clear that there wasn't to be violence around the protocol and, and that there should be dialogue and there should be negotiation for better outcomes. And another section of uh, loyalism around people like Jamie Bryce, etc., who were calling for street protests, ministerial disobedience, and for the collapse of the assembly. So yet again, you know, the, 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 that diversity is important to know. Uh, the reason why they haven't gone away in their own terms, uh, is is that some within loyalism believe that if, if they disappear, you'll end up with dissident loyalists, so you won't be able to control violence. That you'll you'll end up with you know the continuity IRA, or you know you'll end up with continuity UVF or real UVF or real UFF or something. So so one of the arguments they make is that. The other argument, of course, is that if they exist, you know they they can apply pressure to build positive activity. Yet again, it's, 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 it's probably a folly of an argument. There is a point in which they should just go and they should leave the stage and they should make that full transformation into community politics. And of course, what also impedes that is the fear of a United Ireland. And, and the last few years, the growth in civic nationalism, the clamour for a United Ireland has spooked them as well. So, you know, let's think about recent events also. You know, I, I was told that when some political unionists encouraged a bit of delf breaking or a little bit of bringing the boys onto the street, there was sections of loyalism that said, no, that's not going to happen. We're not, we're not going to have a flag protest where we come out in the street, engage in violence, and then our young men 
and women end up with criminal records. So I think anybody who's listening to this who doesn't know loyalism, I think they should be aware that there is a positive progressive wing, which is trying to do good things. And uh, there's another regressive wing, and, and those two wings are in conflict with each other. Between 1998 and 2017, the combined vote share for unionist parties declined by roughly 5%, and unionist parties no longer have a majority in the Northern Ireland Assembly since the last Assembly election. What factors do you think underpin that shift? And does that weakening of unionism in a party political sense mean that the union itself between Britain and Northern Ireland is now in jeopardy? And the bit you also forgot there is, of course, the... uh the share for Sinn Féin and the SDLP has also declined by roughly the same percentage. Because what's happened, if you look at the last election in Westminster, is that over the last decade, the Alliance Party have risen from around 2% to nearly 20% of the electorate. So there's actually been a growth in, in that centrist alignment, which has affected both the SDLP, Sinn Féin, and the Ulster Unionists and the DUP. So so, so there, there is, of course, uh, the point you're making is, is correct. Uh, that you know the decline in the unionist vote has mobilised that fear. Obviously, next year about there being a, a Sinn Féin first minister, uh, there is a psychological issue within that uh, in terms of loss and, and going backwards. But the, the 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 plates are shifting in Northern Ireland. You know, if the Alliance Party goes from two percent to nearly twenty percent of the electorate in five elections, it tells you what the direction of travel is, which is people are slowly moving away from the main four parties. And that also comes out in the in the surveys, you know, this this growth in people who don't express that they're unionist or nationalist. And, and I think that that's something which is which is critically important. I think the present crisis <clears throat> and the removal of Arlene Foster was very clearly linked to a sense that the electoral performances would be poor next year. And for the DUP, of course, that in particular is difficult for them because they, they know that people are moving away from them especially those who are socially liberal and uh, that that sort of uh, tribalistic politics just isn't working in the way that it once did. And of course, what they didn't expect was that in removing Arlene Foster, that at the same time, the Ulster Unionist Party would appoint a new leader uh, in Doug Beattie, who already has had a bounce in terms of uh, popularity. So, so, you know, it's not just that they're ranged against the forces of nationalism and republicanism. But, but there's actually now a serious leader of the Ulster Unionist Party who may build inroads into their vote. So, so what I think overall, why Sinn Féin and, and the DUP have done badly, or did badly in the last election, like Sinn Féin only achieved a growth in the Westminster election in one constituency, which was North Belfast, because the SDLP stood aside. And I, and I think for both of those parties, they are seen as responsible for collapsing the Assembly. And the Assembly is very important and popular within the electorate. So I think I think I think that's part of it. I think the, the what's interesting here in terms of class politics, I think that the kind of the DUP and Sinn Féin is actually coming from working class communities who basically are asking the question, what are you doing for us? Beyond cultural identity wars and beyond the, the fractious nature of the politics that you deliver, what have you actually achieved for our communities in terms of jobs and investment? And, and I think that that's a politics which is worth watching. And it'll be very interesting next year to see how the Alliance Party do again. And, uh, you know, we are in a we are in a process here that give, if you follow recent elections and the decline in the big four, there's something happening here. There's something changing within within the society that, that is Northern Ireland. 
In the wake of the Brexit agreement that was negotiated by Boris Johnson and the Northern Ireland Protocol, how would you describe the unionist perception of the current British government in particular, but also of the British political class in general? I think I think in the first instance, uh, whenever May was in charge and 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 and, and Smith etc., when they negotiated the protocol to a certain extent, the British government acted in good faith, uh, and in regard to the protocol Article Two, where they maintained the provisions in the Good Friday Agreement and European law about the protection of rights, and 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 the the Equality Commission in Northern Ireland was given by the British government under changes in the the uh, Northern Ireland Act 1998 significant powers to ensure no diminution of rights in Northern Ireland. So, so that was a good act by the British government. Article 11, which is concerned the, the Irish uh, border, they have mapped that out with the European Union and uh, identified 149 areas of cooperation. But I think with all with Brexit, it was it, for that political class in Britain, it was to get Brexit done. And, and to deliver Brexit in that populist furore that was that was Brexit, and in doing that, probably signed up to the protocol without understanding that the East-West dynamic would, would would lead to the situation we're in today. I do think this is probably the most pro-union government we've had in a generation, and it'll be interesting to see what strategies they endorse because I think people have misunderstood or maybe not appreciated that. In taking back the internal market, which affects Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, the British government is a is a big player now in the economy of, of Britain. Uh, now that it's left uh, the European Union, and, and I think with Scotland going in a certain direction or close to a certain direction, I think that government is now probably trying to work out strategies for pro-union government and, and for maintaining the cohesion of the UK. But there's no doubt there was can kicking. There was this bluff that we, we can sort issues out and Europe will do things in our terms. And at the end of the day, you know, people like myself who were Remainers, you know, it's, it is a case of uh, we told you so, that this was going to be much more problematic than you promised and you claimed and that you claimed. The DUP had just one leader for its first four decades. It then had three in the space of four weeks this year. Arlene Foster stepped down at the end of May after a leadership heave. A short time ago, I called my party chairman to inform him that I intend to step down as leader of the Democratic Unionist Party on the 28th of May and as the First Minister of Northern Ireland at the end of June. Foster's successor was Edwin Poots, a hardline social conservative notorious for believing that the earth is just 6,000 years old. It is an immense honour and pleasure to stand here today in this position. It's not a position that I expected to be in uh, some weeks ago. Uh, However, uh, things can change quite radically. I first of all want to say thanks uh, to Almighty God for giving me the health and strength to do this. Poot soon discovered just how radically things can change in politics. Before the end of June, he had been ousted in turn by his colleagues. The man Poots had defeated in the leadership contest, Geoffrey Donaldson, now took over unopposed. In his first media appearances, Donaldson urged Boris Johnson to scrap the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, we've heard the Prime Minister, even in recent weeks, talk about addressing the issues and the problems created by the Protocol. We've heard him recognise that there are difficulties in terms of the relationship between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, but not just in trading terms. The Prime Minister also needs to recognise that this impacts 
on our constitutional position. Uh, I'm prepared always to give people a second chance. And I'm prepared to give the Prime Minister an opportunity now to put right what was done wrong to Northern Ireland under the protocol. What challenges does the new leadership of the DUP have to face? Do you think the party will end up paying a lasting price for its entanglement with the politics of Brexit after 2016? Yeah, I think think this is the... God, I think they're in a crisis at the minute. Uh, Even today, there's another person who's left the party. So, So first of all, there was the coup itself, which was not as popular as they thought amongst uh, the rank and file. Uh, that was the first problematic. There was a coup without a plan. What came next in terms of strategy? I know that whenever uh, they went to speak to what they saw as their heartlands, that people said to them very clearly, where's the politics of jobs and investment? I know that people from within those Protestant working class communities in particular said, we no longer want a tribal politics. You know, we work with our Catholic neighbours, we engage with our Catholic neighbours. Where's the politics that makes Northern Ireland a shared and agreed place? And, and I think that came as a bit of a shock to them. And, and what also came as a shock to them, I think, was that people said to them, we no longer want to hear you challenging marriage equality and a woman's right to choose. So so I think I think what you see there is, is and what's not really identified in the conversations that take place, but I think it's probably the reality of what's actually happening here, is the DUP is coming up an increasingly socially liberal uh, unionist community and sections of it which are now very supportive part of the peace process. I think that's very important. But the one thing I do know they've also come up against is people saying, why don't you sell the union? Why aren't you articulating the union? Why are you not pointing out that there are massive problems with the south of Ireland, which, which are reasons why you wouldn't join it 12% of people in the Republic under the age of 40 own their own home. House prices in Northern Ireland are low. The one that's obviously mentions the health service. There is more people in Ireland percentage-wise who are working poor than any other society. And Ireland has, according to the European Union, the highest levels of debt per capita. So people are actually saying that when Poots and others, uh, where's the politics around promoting the union? So, so I think they've actually hit what they thought was a, a, a support base, which has actually turned around to them and said... That type of politics you conduct is not relevant to us. And as, as I've already said, I think the other problem that might arise for them is from what I hear, people are rejoining or joining the Ulster Unionist Party. And people are looking to it as a way to get that type of politics up and running. So as with the, the, the Alliance Party, and to a certain extent with the SDLP, and potentially now with the Ulster Unionists, that we've gone through this very fractious peace process in terms of politics. But in societal terms, the place was being healed. The society was moving on. And, you know, that growth in mixed marriages and mixed relationships and all of that. So so I think the DUP are now caught in that they maintained a sort of a politics of 1998, no, 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 never, 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 to a certain extent, and tried to hollow out the Good Friday Agreement. But actually on the ground, the majority of people were moving on and were living in a very different society. And and I think they were looking for a politics which recognised that. And that's the biggest challenge, I think, for them. And and I think it's probably some of the things I've just said might also relate to Sinn Féin. Many thanks to Peter Sherlow for giving us that account of unionism in Northern Ireland after Brexit. 
You can find more of his perspectives on Northern Irish society at the University of Liverpool's website, including a new project called Civic Space that looks at the region's political future. You can find the link in the page for this podcast.